Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Well, we're back. COVID number nine. This is the ninth time that we are recapping an echo that was done. We do twice a week echoes on COVID. And this week, we had Jed Gorlin, MD, MBA, the medical director and vice president of quality and regulatory affairs at Innovative Blood Resources. Basically, this dude is the medical director of anything blood-related in the Midwest and perhaps New York or... I don't know. If you need blood, you're going to come in contact with something he did. So if you're like a vampire, you'd probably know him. Ah. Didn't think of that. Interesting thought. I didn't. So he talked a little bit. Uh, he got kind of recapped some of the things that we've done before, talking about the coronaviruses, the seven different ones that are really discovered. And some of these are actually common colds, and we've kind of run through that before. I thought it was interesting, though, because he said he was a pediatrician by by initial trade and was sick his first two years of residency dealing with all the kids and sadly all the common colds in the world even though they might be coronaviruses are not giving any antibody protection against coronavirus correct dispersion now he actually had an interesting twist on some of the signs and symptoms we see with covid and i think uh you know we we kind of know all those usual ones uh, but he also had some of the lab testing and how it differed between all patients, uh, blood testing, patients with no ICU care and patients with ICU care. And uh, there was a couple things that really stuck out to me. And, and really the D-dimer was that one uh, where if you look at the patients in the ICU, their average D-dimer is about 2.4 as opposed to the non-ICU COVID patients that are 0.5. Ironically, though, when you look at the platelet count... The ICU platelet counts were 196, and the no ICU was 149. So is this platelet a acute phase reactant, and that's why it's elevated versus lower? Yeah. Just because mm-hmm. with some of the other coagulopathies, platelets tend to kind of be lower. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's interesting that I think a lot of us have looked for kind of that uh, leukopenia. And when you look at the ICU patients, they're typically elevated at 11 uh, 0.3 as opposed to the non-ICU patients at 5.7, but they have lymphopenia. Uh, and so I think that was really interesting. I've got uh, one positive COVID this week and one that I'm sure will be positive because it's a relative, but uh, they both had low uh, white blood counts and uh, really had the first person actually had a mild, a relatively mild case so far. So it might just be one of those um, reassuring sides. And I think yours, you know, the D-dimer thing and um, we did try to get a timeline out of him as far as the D-dimers and such, and I, I think it's interesting how he, with all of the other specialists we've had on, are pretty honest and straightforward. That They just don't know. We all want these perfect answers, but we just don't know. Um, he then did touch on, again, the death rates, looking at both Italy and China primarily, just because they're obviously on their way down on their peak. Um, and sadly, he pointed out the fact that he is – Two dings ahead against him being male and over the age of 60. Being male is generally a good thing, but uh, not with COVID. I did notice today that the males have now surpassed females in Minnesota. For death, you're saying, or, or cases? Cases. 
Mm-hmm. So there's really this lack of approved treatments, and he that is one of the reasons he was going to talk a little bit about convalescent um, serum. And and I think that, uh, you know, the fact there's no vaccines, there's really no pharmacotherapy that helps, and we'll talk a little bit about pharmacotherapy uh, that Chris Hagen from Centricare uh, talked about today. And, and really, there's no availability of this hyperimmune globulin, which uh, might be really months until we have something like that to uh, potentially treat patients with. I, I don't know if anybody knows Mr. Gorlin here, but Dr. Gorlin, he is kind of a funny guy. And I think when he was touching on the pharmacotherapy, which were, of course, like Kurt said, not going to mention a ton right now, he did make a couple funny jokes about, you know, hydroxychloroquine just like quit. Quit trying to make it the miracle drug. Just cut the tie. Cut the cord. It's not going to work. All right. So anyway, back to the whole con- convalescent plasma. He, this is kind of his, you know, his bread and butter and his his thing he's super into. Um, and really where it initially started was when they were looking at both SARS and Ebola and, you know, taking the plasma from those who have recovered from the disease of Ebola or SARS and now COVID-19 um, and, and giving those antibodies that the, the recovered person has made and give them to somebody else. Um, so it's the, the, therap- the, the principle of the therapy is to provide this passive immunity. So you're giving them somebody else's immune system. Is there such a thing as passive aggressive immunity? Hmm. Anyway, so. <laughs> so so anecdotal anecdotal that's one more time anecdotal evidence uh, really suggests that the convalescent plasma is really most used early on, and in fact, as we begin making our own antibodies at seven, eight, nine days, uh, really adding that is not uh, really they don't think helpful, and really getting to that patient when they don't have that immunity uh, may be the the biggest place where we want to use this particular therapy. He, at the end, had kind of just laid it out before 7 to 10 days of, of symptoms. So a patient who's before their seventh, their first week of symptoms, that's when you're going to want to give the convalescent plasma. After that, no. And so in how to decide who gets the plasma before that week of symptoms, that's where it's kind of... You look at the the other risk factors, you know, the old males. Um. <laughs> and I think, just to put this in Minnesota terms, if you get to seven to ten days, the cow's out of the barn. Yes. So people who have a history of cancer, who have cancer, who people who are on immunosuppressants, um, there are studies he did say though that are very kind of rigorously watched studies where they've kind of given this convalescent plasma prophylactically to healthcare workers or. Um, first responders just to kind of see and didn't go into that all that much, but I'm assuming this is not locations such as rural Minnesota. It's much more your downtown New York, yeah. um, but and interesting, very interesting. Yeah, interesting. That's where a lot of the convalescent plasma is coming from. And apparently there's a large number of people recovered uh, in New York that are actually giving plasma. And uh, so he really felt that that's where the biggest uh, – amount of plasma is going to be coming from. So interesting. It's kind of interesting that a lot of it, 6,000 units have gone to the Dakotas with the pork plant outbreaks. Just Not to the pigs. You're talking to the employees. Well. I'm color commentary today. (laughs) Um, And again, you know, there has been some concern that this convalescent plasma might cause some type of antibody inflammatory response and make things worse. And I think this is going to play out over the next months. So 
uh, really, I think he's basically saying stay tuned. Stay tuned. And, you know, like with any transfusion, you run the risk of transfusion reactions, um, potential volume overload, although he did mention that you do get two different transfusions of the plasma in lower quantities. So nothing that would likely volume overload a person, I guess, unless they, they have significant heart failure, really sensitive to volumes. But um, so, yeah, just try to pay attention to that as we move forward. But yeah, multiple trials going. Stay tuned. I don't know. Kind of the bottom line was, is it's probably not going to hurt anything, you know, if, if, yeah. And I think that really when you look at this, if you've got those patients that have lab work that would hint that they are going to have a more severe course or they have comorbidities, which may give you an idea that things are going to go poorly, potentially this is where maybe you're going to use that. So um, the, the places when we, we kind of asked ahead or asked him about, where you get this plasma, though. So can you get this plasma if you live in the middle of rural Minnesota or in the middle of rural anywhere in the United States? Really, your normal blood bank that you you typically use for your blood bank needs to have a contract with a distributor, if you will. Um, and so that's something that has to be built in. There's a ton of paperwork that's going to be involved, especially, you know, the, you know, the fancy thing where it says, yes, you understand this is not a verified, you know, a fancy medication through the FDA, but um, so a lot of paperwork didn't really get to the thing is what if your hospital doesn't have that kind of contract? I think that's where you'd be potentially looking at transferring to a higher um, more tertiary care center. Um, but there's a lot of places people can go to donate um, if they're beyond that 14 days of symptoms and they've been, they've been cleared of their disease. Um, Red Cross, Innovative Blood Resources, you can Google where can you donate plasma and, um, for COVID. I have totally lost Kurt on the bullet points. Why don't you go talk about some of the coagulopathies, Kurt, in COVID? Yeah, I don't know where you went there. but I was just finishing the idea of donation. Yeah, that's taking too much time. Is there a... <laughs> You know, basically, he talked a little bit about the COVID nineteen associated coagulopathy, and um, how it's. Uh, you know, the question being, is it any different from DIC? And uh, really, when he looked, you look at the patterns. He talked a little bit about the elevations in fibrinogen and D dimer levels, and how this correlates with uh, some of the rise in some of the other markers like CRP. And interesting on some of the lab things that we talked about earlier, he didn't really have lab breakdown from people in the ICU as to as to non-ICU patients, but I suspect the CRP would be higher. Um, and again, unlike the pattern seen in uh, classic DIC from like bacterial sepsis or trauma, uh, really that degree of uh, uh, P PTT elevation is often less than the PT elevation. So that's something that you can look at. Uh, sometimes that thrombocytopenia is milder, you know, might be hanging around 100,000. Um, but I think that... Uh, you know, this uh, this is just different, and uh, that's something just to, again, I think he believes that that's things that are going to be worked out sometime in the near future. You know, he said, for those who are critically ill and you're super-duper worried about, you know, the coagulopathy and all those complications, um, really using your DIC-type um, protocols and um, criteria, I think he talked about the ISTH criteria, um, to really monitor in that fibrinogen, if you're looking at fibrinogen, although it is an acute phase reactant and will jump up like the D-dimer, um, it plummets um, after just a couple of days a little bit faster. 
but that D-dimer seems to be the thing that they're they're watching a lot more closely. Um, with the D-dimers above that three to four t- times higher than normal are the ones where you're potentially looking at more severe um, clotting issues. You talked a little bit about the coagulopathy and the prognosis uh, when these patients get that uh, with COVID, and, and he actually kind of mentioned this study in Wuhan. Um, 71% of these non-survivors from COVID-19 infection met uh, criteria for DIC compared to just 0.4% of the provi- or providers, survivors. And uh, a lot of times that elevated D-dimer admission uh, was markedly increased uh, three to four times higher in the non-survivors. Clearly, Kurt's not listening to anything I'm saying, but just so you all know, three to four times higher D-dimer now that we've both said it a couple times. Is important. You must have went off script while I I was sleeping. I did. Um, As far as things to monitor um, with that whole DIC things, monitor the platelet count, the the PTINR, the INR, much uh, easier to to kind of judge by the D dimer and the fibrinogen levels. Anything with this, but should you just anticoagulate people? This therapeutic anticoagulation, kind of a prophylactic approach. Um, the jury, again, is still out on this, but really, if it's anybody who's hospitalized with COVID, they should have your typical anticoagulation, the the low molecular weight heparins, your Lovenoxes. That should just kind of be what you do. Um, these patients are sick, they're ill, they're fatigued, they're not moving around a lot, so they're already going to have a increased clot risk. Um, so really to make sure that you're um, completely you know, prophylacting your patients that are admitted anyway. With the caveat, he made a point of this, is seeing if your hospital can check the anti-10A levels um, because certain patients may need higher levels of prophylaxis and or treatment um, doses. I think basically what that said to me is if somebody's having these kind of problems, they should be somewhere where there's a hematologist. That's just my thought because I don't want to deal with that. Kurt just basically doesn't trust his own intelligence, and that's fair. I mean, if I can't be there every day to back him up, it's okay. I understand. Yeah. (laughs) So we're moving on. Um, And I think that's really was the kind of the gist of his talk. Uh, And then we moved on to to Chris Hagen, our PharmD from Centricare, who gives a every week Thursday update on the drugs for COVID. Can I just one just because you mentioned Chris Hagen and his you know focus on what what would he want if he was sick? You know, we asked Doctor Gorlin if you know he got COVID and didn't need to be hospitalized, would he take the prophylactic aspirin? Because that question has been asked several times, and he hedged it. He didn't really answer the question. Um, it was like asking a politician. I you know, <laughs> I'm I'm not in the high risk group, but I would like to think that like. Kurt, if you get COVID and you don't need to be hospitalized, I'm probably going to tell you you should probably be taking a baby aspirin. Just crush it and put it down my ET tube. <laughs> so you're, you're intubated at home, huh? My age, you, you'd hope that you get intubated. So, um, so yeah, so Chris Hagen uh, from uh, Centricare. And uh, so he first, first talked about a little the NIH guidelines, and really there are no updates in this area. Uh, he basically said that uh, uh, all of the different things that have kind of been hanging around, nothing has changed um, but he did talk about a few of the drugs that uh, have been brought up intermittently on some of the other echoes. The first one being uh, generic pepsid, which would be famotidine. Famotidine at ridiculously high doses. Yes. And uh, there's a lot of questions whether or not this was some kind of a game changer because 
there had been some retrospective review in China, and uh, basically you had a lot of people who were on omeprazole. You had a lot of people who were on famotidine. That's really hard to say, like fast. And uh, the original data showed you were twice as likely to die if you were on omeprazole and not famotidine. So he, he might have made a couple um, remarks, kind of saying like where these people lived in China versus you know the their financial backgrounds um, of who was on which medication. So it'd be very interesting to see how these studies come out even further with demographics and, and comorbidities. comorbidities and weight mm-hmm. and all those things as well. But very interesting. Yeah, so they're working on that. And he basically said that there's another study that's actually going on now in New York State uh, with 187 people presently. And you're actually eligible for that as long as your kidney beans are working. And uh, the theory is that this famotidine actually inhibits this papain-like protease, which is actually necessary for this replication of coronavirus. So uh, they're actually, he talked to me about this on the morning run and was saying how uh, basically a molecular uh, scientist saying that this looked very similar to a different different protein. And so um, they're wondering if it doesn't somehow interfere. So we'll see. I think the the doses are super high and uh, we'll have to see how this all plays out. Especially when there is this potential renal insufficiency with coronavirus and all of that. And I, I think one total aside when, when you know, Fomotidine even got mentioned on Tuesday and then we made Chris look this up and now they're saying that it looks like this other protease thing. Think about all these medications that we prescribe and if the right virus came along, what it also could be good for. Isn't that just crazy to think about? Like, I don't think about it. It's just interesting. But so, anyway. Yeah, the final in that is uh, going to come out in Science and Annals, annals, <laughs> annals of uh, Internal Medicine Reports. It's been a long day. Um, go ahead with remdesivir. Remdesivir. Um, I must not have the last page of this because this is the end of my pages. But remdesivir is still Chris Hagen's choice of medication if he were still to get sick. And even Dr. Fauci alludes um, that the news and the releases are all going to be fairly positive. Um, there's been double-blinded placebo-controlled studies, different um, studies dealing with remdesivir, both from the, the maker, the Gilead Pharmaceuticals. Um, not as good of a study because it wasn't double-blinded and placebo-controlled. That's um, why it was called the simple study. The simple study, exactly. Uh, the first study, by the way, was from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, which is where Dr. Fauci, everybody's favorite infectious disease doc, works. Um, and then the Lancet, when they studied their, um, or released their study out of Wuhan, remdesivir didn't seem to have any benefit. So again... Kind of hard to say, but that is still Chris Hagen's drug of choice if he gets sick. Every time I see Dr. Fauci on the news, I'm like, man, somebody needs to look at your vocal cords. You sound coarse. Um, but anyway, that's just me. Um, and so really the other thing was really his ACE and his ARB update. And uh, there are some big uh, big things that have been looked at in this meta-analysis that actually involved fourteen over 1,400 patients really showed that uh, that reduction in severe disease in 44% of 44%. So... You know, 62% reduction in the odds of death in people who are on these coming in. So I think that, uh, you know, that's, again, I think that's going to be looked at over months and years. Um, and I think that when they looked at these patients in general, there was almost 20% uh, reduction in odds of 
as odds of being hospitalized. But for some reason, that wasn't uh, statistically significant, uh, at least at this point. In terms of death, it wasn't, I think. In terms of death. In terms of death. And then I just thought this was super awesome if anybody is a uh, Mythbusters kind of fan. But the whole beta, the BCG, not beta, (laughs) HCG, BCG vaccine, the tuberculosis vaccine, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was all this great data coming out saying how amazing it was in, in countries where people um, had been immunized um, with the BCG vaccine, um, were much less likely to get COVID. However, this has all been busted and it hasn't really played out to be all that beneficial. So we don't all need to start going to get that vaccine to prevent it. Yeah, no significant, statistically significant data or correlation. So, yeah, wrecked. Last on the list, but certainly not the least, uh, Joe Helly, our friend from Centricare, who is part of the emergency response coordinated, whatever it's called in the Twin Cities. Homeland now. Security. Homeland Security. And uh, Dr. Hick could not make it today. And Joe was. He was doing something really important with FEMA. Yes, he's much more important uh, than us. So uh, one of the things, of course, that in Minnesota we have been struggling with is the testing. And I believe today, uh, I believe they did 3,500 tests today, which was the most uh, we've had. And, of course, the numbers have been going up. I Actually, I looked at Stearns County and went up 100, which is to our south. Um, you know, it's uh, there's a big hot spot in southern Minnesota, southwestern Minnesota as well, where they have over 700 cases. So a lot more testing being done and that whole partnership between the U of M and and Mayo uh, seems to be something that, as it gets online, we're going to be able to basically test everyone and probably our pets. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Maybe but. not. But, you know, the good news is, is you know, looking at the data coming out of the state today, the deaths did go up, but nothing catastrophic compared to previous. Um, ICU and hospitalizations did go up a hair, but again, nothing extreme. And we're all still in the green as far as um, capacity. And so... Stay tuned, but overall good news. Hopefully we'll have a lot more information next Thursday when Chris Ayersman from MDH comes back to talk about the nursing homes as well as the testing um, from the state. Tuesday we are going to have um, a couple of physicians out of Fairview Home and Hospice basically talking about home management and symptom management of COVID-19. So whether these are people who are choosing to not be innovated and go home and more um, pass peacefully or people who just have a lot of symptoms but don't necessarily need to be hospitalized, how we can manage them at home comfortably and safely. Um, the bottom line, I think, today is we should all prophylactically get on an ACE, take a baby aspirin, and buy stock in remdesivir. Yeah, and I've got if I if I buy some of that, I'm going to have to get all that uh, – Famotidine out of my garage. I, apparently, you're not <laughs> supposed to be hoarding it. Um, I'm joking. None of these statements I just made are actually what you should really do. Not really true. Um, so, and then, and then that Thursday, next Thursday, again, that's uh, the long-term care with uh, MDH. We're looking at the following week, uh, potentially pediatrics and possibly dermatology. Dermatology. So we're going to uh, kind of sp- spread into those areas. Well, And we've had some requests to do some type of... Um, mortuary science or, you know, what happens when all these patients have died and the, the safety of all of that. So stay tuned. We're continuing to work on it. And please let us know if you have any requests. Yeah. We would love to, to do what we can. And That's- cases, I think, are going to start coming as well. So there'll be some good case reviews that we'll be able to 
walk through as a big collaborative group um, on that go as well. Yeah. And remember next week on our our usual Echo Wednesday, Bob Levy talking about alcohol, 12.15 on Wednesday. Which is ironic because the Tuesday podcast, the regular Addiction Connection podcast is part one of our alcohol podcast. So it kind of coincides nicely. Perfectly. And so I I can hear our band warming up. We have a an in-studio band in this basement. Um, but uh, we're going to let them uh, play a little song for us, Heather. All right. So, yeah, this is um, Battle Legs. They are playing Song of the Fishes with us today. Everybody have a great weekend. Yeah, that's different than Swim of the Fishes. Correct. Song of the Fishes. Come all you bold fishermen, listen to me. I'll sing you a song of the fish in the sea. So blow your winds westerly, westerly blow. We're bound for the southward, steady we go. First comes a bluefish, a wagon his tail. He comes up on deck and yells, All hands make sail. So blow you winds westerly, westerly blow. We're bound for the southward, steady we go. Next come the eels with angerful tails. They jump up aloft and loose all the sails. So blow you winds westerly, westerly blow. We're bound for the southward, steady we go. The mackerel with his striped back He flops up on bridge and yells For the main tack So blow you winds westerly Westerly blow We're bound for the southward Steady we go Up jumps the fisherman Stalwart and grim And with his big net He scoops them all in So blow you winds westerly Westerly blow We're bound